Good afternoon, everyone. We're finally getting some winter weather. Kind of missed Christmas and uh, New Year's, but it was frosty this morning, that's for sure. I'd like to uh, share a little today about working with God for the harvest. You can see uh, the notes for the lesson are right there in front of you. And um, I really love to examine the creation, just what God has made, because God, he, his, the creation resonates with His purposes. It's so interesting, uh, I, I have a little bit of an interest in science, and it's interesting to, to learn physics, learn math, learn chemistry, learn biology, because as you delve into any of these areas, you do start to see truth about God. You start to see things that He's demonstrating to us. And one of the motifs and one of the themes that keeps coming up in the Scripture is the idea of a harvest. And if you were uh, living in almost any other age except the one we're in, uh, a harvest would be a pretty important thing. Now, I don't know, how many of us grew up on farms? Yeah, there's a few, you know, uh, but not too many. And uh, how many people see a farm when they look out the window of where they live today, you know, in the morning? And, uh, you know, we're, we're living, right now we're living uh, pretty much in the city, pretty urbanly. And uh, farming's been kind of put out there, and there's just a small percentage of our population that even deal with it. But there was a time in history when, in fact, the majority of people would have been somehow involved in food production. And they would have been, been involved in farming in some aspect. And it's an interesting experience to be a farmer. Because though you can get skill, and there's certain things you can learn, and, and knowledge and expertise, the truth is, there's a lot of things as a farmer that are absolutely beyond your control. And so there's a spiritual experience in being a farmer. Uh, I don't think there's any such thing as a primitive culture that are, you know, agricultural culture... Uh, where, in fact, they're atheists. Uh, if you throw your seed into the ground, you're praying to somebody that something's going to happen. There's somewhere in your heart you know that you can't make that seed grow. There's processes at work that are beyond your control. If you went back to Genesis chapter 1, and we read there how the Holy Spirit, after God created everything, the Holy Spirit began to form this uh, mass and this this universe into a sort of a working, a working order. It's, it's quite an amazing story. But it comes to the, uh, the plants. It says that he created the, you know, the, the green plants and the vegetation, and he gave them the power to reproduce after their own kind. That's amazing when you really think about it. That you can take a little seed and throw it in the dirt, and under the right conditions it will actually sprout and grow and that little seed could become a tree. That little seed could become enough wood for you to build a house. That little tree could produce enough fruit to, to feed a hundred people for a week. That little seed. Isn't that amazing? But see, could you make a seed? No, I mean, but God made seeds. And where do seeds come from? Well, they're a long chain of seeds back to the first ones God made. And He said, you know, He made them so they would keep reproducing, and they do. But what's interesting is, 
God's made these principles. God makes the sun rise, the sun set. God is the one that gives us the rain. And though we can... uh, Though we can do all sorts of measurements and figure out a lot of the reasons how things happen, the truth is, can a weatherman really tell you what the weather's going to be tomorrow? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think they're any better in this country than, you know, some guy in, in a, some tribal jungle somewhere dancing around the fire telling you what's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, uh, the odds may be a little better, but you know what I'm saying. It's just really hard to know because it is so complex. This world we live in. And so much is, of course, beyond our control. It'd be nice to be able to promise a sunny day tomorrow, right? It was so funny. We, uh, we moved to Los Angeles 13 years ago. And we've been working in Russia for eight years. And, um, I mean, we're so programmed after being in Russia where you could never tell what the weather was going to be. In the winter, it was minus 30. In the summer, it was plus 30. So we had the seasons and you had all the change. But, you know, they announced at the service in Los Angeles, they said, we're going to have an outdoor service on this date. And I just kept waiting. And and what do you do if it rains? But no one said anything. And so I went up to someone. I said, what are you guys going to do if it rains? And the guy, and he looks at me and goes, it's Southern California. It's not going to rain. But so even in Southern California, it sometimes did rain. But, you know, we, we think we can control things. But God has made this world. And what's interesting is, as men and women, men and people learned how to, to sort of work with God here when it comes to, to uh, plants and, and growing fruit and things, there started to become farmers and what we call a harvest. Where there's a season of growth and there's a time to do certain things. And at the end of that time... There's a big celebration because all the food comes in and all you get the return for all your work. So let's just read together over in Psalm 67. We'll pick this up in the notes here. Psalm 67. He's talking about a harvest here. But I think we can see that already there's an imagery of God blessing His people. So just read this, Psalm 67, it says, May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make His face shine upon us, that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, O God, may all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples justly and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, O God, may all peoples praise you. Then the land will yield its harvest, and God, our God, will bless us. God will bless us and all the ends of the earth will fear Him. You know, the psalmist here is talking about the people of Israel, and this is probably a thousand years before Jesus lived. It's like 3,000 years ago. But he's trying to say to the people, live righteously, do what God wants, and God will bless us. And that's like a harvest. And just like in a harvest, people see the blessing, they're impressed and they're encouraged especially if that in some way can be a blessing for them. And so the land will yield its harvest and it's a blessing from God. Well, we're going to spend the rest of this, this lesson just in the New Testament, but we're going to be taking this idea of a harvest into the spiritual realm and talk about a spiritual harvest that God wants us to be part of. 
And what's interesting about this is, whenever the Bible talks about a harvest, it isn't a guy walking through the woods and gathering berries. A harvest is always something planned. It's something anticipated. It's something in connection with the seasons. And the farmer figures out, I need to put my seed down here. I need to pray for rain here. I need to get the weeds out there. He has to coax it along through the process, do what he can to help, and in the end gather in the harvest. And see, in the spiritual world, this is such a great analogy, because God wants to bless us. He wants to give us a spiritual harvest. But the truth is, there's some things we have to do. It's a cooperative uh, effort. And the two kinds of harvest I want to talk about is a harvest of righteousness and peace in our hearts, and also a harvest of souls. And And I'll talk more about that in the second point. But who here has too much peace? I mean, is peace peace something that describes our world? Wouldn't you rather describe this world as being a little anxious, a little hectic? You know, I work. I went to bed last night and thinking, great. You know, we have this afternoon service tomorrow, and there's a few things I want to be working on in the morning. And uh, I'm glad I did this, but I just thought, well, I'll see if any new emails came in right before I lay down. And what came in was Lester's order of service, our Lester congregation's order of service. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I don't normally get these unless I'm preaching. (laughs) Oh, oh yeah, that's right. I'm preaching in Lester. This is midnight last night. And I had all these things already planned for the morning before. And uh, suddenly I felt very hectic. You know, I felt anxious, but I was tired, so I just said, I'm just going to, Lord, let tomorrow worry about itself, but I did get up early. (laughs) But you you know how that happens, right? Peace is something very elusive. And righteousness, what is righteousness? Righteousness is acceptability to God. You know, you can have a legalistic righteousness, but that means you're living acceptable to the law. We can have sort of human righteousness, and that's lots of times that's sort of how we look at each other and uh, what things that you know humans value. But then there's a righteousness that God gives us, and this is acceptability to God. Now, who would like a little more peace in their heart? Yeah, who would like a little more acceptability? See that 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 sense. I mean, only God can give it, but it's. It actually can have a harvest where you feel it. It produces something in you. Let's look over in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, verse 6. Galatians 3, verse 6. It says, Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. For anyone visiting with us, Abraham's a very significant figure in the whole Bible. Right near the very beginning, like in the 12th chapter of the first book, Abraham comes on the scene. And through Abraham comes the nation of Israel. And through Abraham comes, uh, uh, actually, that Jesus would be an, uh, a descendant of Abraham, physically speaking, humanly speaking. And so, Abraham's very significant, but he was a man of faith 
who was asked by God to do something and without questioning God, without grumbling, without complaining, just went and did it. So consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Through Abraham, Jesus would come. And through Jesus, of course, we have the blessing of the forgiveness of our sins and uh, the renewal of our lives. But also, Abraham was sort of a prototype because he believed in a way that was acceptable to God. And God said, you're good. Now, I didn't say to Abraham, you're perfect. But he said, you're acceptable. We can have a relationship. That's pretty awesome. Verse 10, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. And in your Bibles you see all these things in quotation marks. These were things in the Old Testament. But the Jews of the first century didn't see it this way. And they were using the law as a way to make themselves presentable to God. God, we're acceptable because we do your law. You have to accept us. But it's always been faith that's made people acceptable to God. The law simply shows us our need for God. It goes on to say, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. See, this whole process of salvation has to do with believing in the sacrifice of Jesus and receiving from Jesus the gift of God's Spirit inside. And this is righteousness. That God considers us worthy, acceptable. But we can only come to Him through Jesus Christ. Look over in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew 6, we have a a description of of, of some of the acts of righteousness. It's an interesting phrase. But if you're righteous, there's certain things you would do. If you're in love, anybody in love? If you're in love, there's a few things you'll do. You know, if you're, uh, if if you have faith, there's natural things you'll do. If you're angry, there's natural things you'll do. I mean, the state of your heart affects your actions, right? When you're righteous, there's a way you'll act before God. And look what it says in verse in chapter 6, verse 1, Matthew 6, verse 1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Wow. See, there's certain acts that we would do because... We respect God because we're connected to God. And he goes on to talk about three things. He talks about giving to the poor. He talks about praying. He talks about fasting. And these are things, if someone's devoted to God, 
You're going to think about these things. You're going to think about how you can share with others the blessings God's given to you. You're going to think about how I can deepen my relationship with God and speak with Him. And, and you're going to think about even fasting, which isn't really popular. And this wasn't, a, you know, this wasn't for diet purposes. This wasn't a, a lose weight solution. Fasting was an extension of prayer where you gave up something so you could devote yourself more wholly to God. Most typically thinking food. You know, if you're not going to eat, what happens? You get hungry. Some of you are maybe even hungry right now. And that hunger makes you, it gives you energy, doesn't it? Or at least it gives you, how can you say it? Conviction. Maybe you're so hungry you don't have much energy, but you have conviction. I need to find some food. And so fasting helps us because it, it, it intensifies our time with God. But see, in all these things, we can give, we can serve, we can pray, but we can also get commended by men for that and actually get sucked into sort of doing it for each other's commendation. And I would just say, quite honestly, probably the number one reason there's so many forms of Christianity, so many denominations, is a a compromise made among people no matter how they began meeting together, they start worrying about more what others think about them than what God thinks about them. They start worrying about how their Christian life looks to others, and they're looking for approval, rather than simply looking for the approval of God. And see, our righteous acts need to be done for God. Now, you might say, some people take this so literally, they say, oh, you shouldn't do anything publicly. But Jesus Himself gave, fed the poor, um, helped the poor, he, he fed the hungry, He healed the sick. It was all very public, actually. He prayed publicly, but He didn't do it for the praise of men. The reason, sometimes we're forced by definition to do it publicly. We've been doing a lot of things publicly here today, haven't we? We've been singing and praying and fellowshipping. It's all public. Now hopefully we haven't lost our reward. But if you're doing this, man, if you just showed up, to be seen by men. You know, sometimes this happens. People come right as service begins, and right as it's about to end, they're out the door. And in their minds, I came. I've somehow checked the box. I've now qualified myself as faithful. But that's not what makes someone faithful before God. Even if there was someone here taking attendance, and, and you got every check mark. You're there at every meeting. If that's all your Christian life is, that's not righteousness before God. Do you hear me? So it's important to understand that the righteousness God gives us, it does come out in action. But let's not be worried about what others uh, think about, about them accepting us. Let's worry about how God is looking at us. A practical example, let's look over in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. You know, just like today in the first century world, uh, the finances weren't evenly distributed. You know, there's been a lot of talk lately. Uh, you probably have read about Occupy Wall Street, Occupy... Uh, what was it? St. Paul's had a little Occupy colony there down in London for a while, right? And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of clamor going on. That uh, one... What's really being said, there's a number of things being said, but one of them is 1% of the people have... 
what is it, 99% of the wealth, not too much. I wish I knew 90% of the wealth. Someone hear that stat? It was 90, okay? So 1% of the people have 90% of the wealth. Of course, and of course, you know, where are people upset about this? Well, you hear most of it, it's happening in New York, it's happening in England, it's happening in a lot of the first world countries. The thing that's interesting about it is, if you look at the first world countries, they're the 1%. You know, if you, are ma- if you make more than 21,000 pounds a year, you are in the top 1% of the world. That puts the average person in the UK in the 1%. Do you hear what I'm saying? Let's look over here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Because in the first century they also had disparity. Some of the places in the world were quite rich and the churches were more wealthy. Some of the churches were in poor areas of the, of the world and they needed help. And so, the context of 2 Corinthians 9 is, Paul was orchestrating a collection for the poor to be taken to Jerusalem. And he's working in Asia Minor and Macedonia, Greece, and that area. But look what it says here in verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, if you're a farmer and you went out into your field and you only threw out three seeds, could you expect this incredible blanket of growth by midsummer? Well, not of the things that you planted. You know, odds are... There might be something growing there, but it's not what you want. You know, this kind of shows the power of, of, uh, of vegetation, right? You know, we've, uh, our, our garden, somebody 25 years ago put a lot of effort into the garden where we live, in the home that we have here in Birmingham. But about 12 years ago, 14 years ago, the, that, that series of owners, they uh, weren't so interested and actually, gardening has been not just try to recover from the forest, you know, the garden. Part of it's been archaeology. Uh, just, you know, literally removing three inches of silt and finding a completely done patio at the back, 35 feet wide, 25 feet deep, and it's completely covered in silt. Quite handy because I wanted to build a storage set and that saved me the trouble of building a foundation. Just put some blocks there and build it. But, but there's this beautiful... At some point, somebody had something really amazing back there. But the power of the vegetation is it just took over. You know, gardening. Now, now how many people garden? We may not have many farmers, but how many people spend the time in the garden, right? Could you describe that as a little bit of a battle? And do you kind of count on God to do certain things to help you bring your garden to the right place? You know, the great thing about England is almost anybody can have a green garden. I mean, it, it'll be green. What, what is green with? That's a whole other question. But, but it will grow. And so, you know, you, you can, but you can work together with God in this and make something incredibly beautiful. I've never seen so many beautiful gardens as I have in this country. It's really a wonderful thing. But man works together with God. People 
work together with the rules of growth, of, of harvest. And guess what? Something beautiful is created. One of the principles is, if you sow generously, you will reap generously. But if you're stingy, if you don't sow much seed, you can't expect much harvest. Look a little further here in verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, He scattered abroad His gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now God is able to make us like abundantly fruitful. He is able to bless us in an amazing way. And look at verse 10. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. What's interesting, he's saying, if you would give, if you really give joyfully, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, but give generously and joyfully, actually there's going to be some righteous fruit in your life. There'll be a harvest of righteousness. But if we hold back and if we're stingy, we're not going to get the satisfaction of doing what is right. So every farmer knows if you're going to be successful, you've got to work together with God. You have to learn how the harvest works. You have to learn how the seasons work and you have to cooperate with Him. And then there's a harvest. I want to talk just finally about a harvest of souls. Who wants to go to heaven? Okay, what can you take with you? Just just touch the arm of the person beside you. Because you could take them. The only, the only thing you can take in this room is possibly the person beside you. Hear what I'm saying? I see some people holding on real tight to each other, and that's good. That's really good. You know, I... I was just going to say, you know, one thing attracted me to Tammy, I was convinced being married to her would help me get there. Okay, it's, it's important that we understand that we have a harvest with each other in our relationships. That there's something, by working together with God, miracles can take place. And a harvest can be had in our lives. Look in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We'll start reading in verse 35. It says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into His harvest field. It's an interesting challenge because the next verse in chapter 10, He then sends them out into the harvest field. So if you pray for God to send out workers, get your boots on. Because God's going to be asking you to help out too. But what, he said, what Jesus is saying here is, look, the harvest is open. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to bring people with Him back to heaven. 
That's his, that's his number one goal. Now to do that, he re- it was required for him to make a sacrifice that could forgive us of our sins. But he was here to bring us home. To bring us back to the Father. And in that point of view, he saw himself sort of as a farmer. Because he came and he looked at the earth as a field that needed to be harvested. And there are certain things he needed to do to bring in the harvest of souls. Well, we're with Jesus in this. Look over in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, Jesus had, was journeying throughout the, uh, from Judea up into Galilee, and He decided to stop and have a little break in Samaria. And He was tired, so He stopped by a well, and there's sort of a famous story of Him meeting this woman at the well, and she's so shocked that He was friendly to her because she was a Samaritan, and Jews and Samaritans didn't have any kind of civil interaction. And so, you know, Jesus just finished having this conversation with her when His disciples had gone into the city, came back with food. But what's interesting is, Jesus had a conversation with her. She went back into the city, and she brought the city out to Jesus. So, they were kind of surprised by Jesus' attitude. And look what it says, just picking it up in verse 35. John 4.35 Do not say four months more and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the reaper draws his wages. Even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. You know, we are being sent out by Jesus both to sow and to reap. And sowing is spreading the good news about Jesus, and that's sometimes in very specific words. Sometimes that's just being, that's just a demonstration of our love and concern for others. Sometimes a conversation isn't possible. But we can still show people who we are and what we believe. And that sows a seed in people. But also there's a time when, you know, if they're gonna be if there's gonna be a reaping, then there's gonna have to be some discussion, there's gonna have to be some, some clarity. Reaping means they're gonna make a decision to become followers of Jesus as well. So Jesus saw these people coming out of the city. He says, don't wait four months for the harvest. It's ready right now. But this is a little bit of a difference in the spiritual harvest. When it comes to the physical harvest, no one reaps and sows at the same time. Can you imagine you go out one day, and you go out in the morning and you sow the seed, and then you go out in the morning to to collect the fruit? Is that going to happen? No, that, that doesn't happen that way. Fruit flies grow about that fast, but uh, no fruit-producing plant has that much change in just a few hours. That's not what happens. And so you have to do it according to a schedule. You have to understand the principles. But what's interesting about this is God is already working in the lives of people. Jesus said to His disciples, You will reap where another has sown. That was most dramatically happened on the day of Pentecost, after the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had spent three years preaching. 
The disciples were kind of hanging with Him, sometimes with Him, sometimes wondering what was going on, but they were faithful. Only one was lost. The eleven of them made it to the day of Pentecost. That was seven weeks after Jesus had risen from the dead. And they were there in Jerusalem. And Peter stood up and began to preach. And he told them about Jesus. And what he said was, you know this Jesus I'm talking to, talking about. You saw His miracles. God proved who He was. And He preached this sermon. It was probably longer than this one, just to put it in perspective. I don't know. But uh, He was preaching a sermon. And at the end of the sermon, 3,000 people were baptized. Now, I think that's the best example of, you will reap what another has sown. Because those 3,000 baptisms were more connected to the ministry of Jesus for three and a half years than they were to what they had done that day. 3,000 people? I don't think the the Jerusalem church ever had another day where 3,000 people were baptized in a day. I think that would be pretty much statistically impossible. But that day they did. Because Jesus had done a lot of sowing. You know, in the Birmingham church this last year, 11 people were baptized. And that's pretty exciting, isn't it? And just in December, three people were baptized. That's exciting. But you know, if you, whenever you start talking with someone and, and get to know them, and they want to become a Christian and they're baptized, you will see that God was working in their life long before any disciple came along. God was doing a lot of hard work. In fact, it begins with their parents. It begins, it begins from birth. And God is working in the life of every person, trying to bring them to Himself. And sometimes God does all the hard work. We study the Bible with somebody in just a few days. They're baptized. Now how does that feel if you're part of that? Is that a pretty awesome feeling? But see, God did the work. There's something we must do, just like a farmer. But God is the one who makes it work. Do you understand what I'm saying? God's the one who brings it to fruition. You can't go out into the field and just you know, draw corn stalks and corn cobs and harvest them. We can't do that. We can't make the food. God produces it through His power. Look over in Romans chapter 10. If the seed's going to grow, someone has to plant it. And this is, a, this is a very simple little point, but it's a very logical question. In Romans 10 verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? Okay, so he's talking about the unevangelized world out there. How can you call how can they call on God if they haven't believed in him? But how can they believe in him if they've not heard about him? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? Now this wasn't that hard of hard of a logical argument, was it? Basically saying, how will people know about Jesus unless someone tells them? Can we trust the media to give people a true picture of who Jesus was? Can we trust people that make money from their books or from their whatever they're doing? Can we trust them to you know t- 
teach about Jesus? I mean, that's, that's, they have to learn about Jesus from someone who really believes in Jesus. They need to hear from someone who is an example of what it means to follow Jesus. How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Now it's interesting, he's talking, kind of flip-flopping here a little bit, but he's talking about the people of Israel, saying that all the Israelites, they, they know what God's about. They know His plan. But when they heard the gospel... Because it was talking about a righteousness that comes through the sacrifice of Jesus and not through legalism, many of them couldn't accept it. They didn't hear what the gospel was saying. But it says here, he quotes a a psalm, their voice has gone out into all the world, their words to the ends of the world. That's a psalm talking about the heavens declare the glory of God. And see, when you stand outside on a clear night... And you see all the stars. Do you sit there and reflect on how great you are? You look up at the heavens, maybe you see the Milky Way, and you can just see all that, and you're like, boy, I'm just so powerful, you know? No, the normal thought that kind of comes to you is, wow. Especially if it's like a really clear night. And you just start to realize how big that is. And you notice the bigger it gets, sort of the smaller you feel. You you get a perspective, right? There's the universe. Now, until I looked up, I thought I was the center of the universe. But you look up and you start to realize, boy, this thing is big. And you start to realize, it's a lot bigger than me. And this little universe that we control, we start to realize, well, it's not that much. And we start asking the right kind of questions. But see, God says the whole world is without excuse because the creation proclaims His existence. But now we're being sent out with a new message. The message about Jesus. And how will people hear unless they are told? And how will they be told told unless we're willing to speak? Let's just close by looking over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul carries on this sort of farming motif. And he talks about building the church. And it it almost sounds like a little English garden, the way he describes it. We'll pick this up right here in verse 5. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 5 says, What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each one will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. 
He says, he's talking about the ministers, and he's saying, what do we do? We plant and we water. But God makes it grow. You know, I know in, uh, in farming communities, there's always a festival near the end of the growing season, and everyone's showing off their, you know, their best produce. And as they show it off, you know, it's like, that produce belongs to this farmer. And he'll say, I grew that. You know, there's a little bit of misguided uh, credit going right there. You know what I'm saying? Because though he was involved, God is the one who made that fruit. You know, we were able to clone a lamb scientifically, you know, a few years back. We've cloned a lamb! Well, how did you clone a lamb? Well, we took the genetic material from a lamb that already exists... And, you know, we put it into this neutral cell and, you know, they they went through all these processes. But at the end of the day, did they create a lamb? No, they basically figured out a way to give birth to a lamb or to conceive a lamb that wasn't the normal way. But it's still just taking a lamb that God had made and just kind of produce it in another way. Do you understand what I'm saying? They didn't, like if someone went into there with, you know, no materials, all dead materials. I'll even give them that. At least God created His own materials. But I'll give any scientist, go into just with a bunch of chemicals and let me see you come out with anything that's alive. Just take all the chemicals you want and all the time you want. Let me just see you come out with something that's alive, that will reproduce and, and you know, that it's never been done. With all of our brilliance, it's never been done. Because only God can make it grow. Only God can do that. But see, there's something we can do to bring in the harvest. We can sow, we can water, and we can reap at the end of the day. You know, just this is a little bit of announcement just for the uh, members of the church. But of course, uh, certain events here, everyone here is welcome to come to. But this also, this little on the back sheet, it sort of gives you an idea of what we're about at a church. If you've just been coming out on Sunday and don't see our regular schedule as a church, uh, we actually, as a, as a group of believers, we meet three times a week. And we meet once, usually on Fridays, in a small group. That's, it's very enjoyable. And uh, sometimes on Fridays we meet congregationally for some teaching and things. And then we also meet during the week in smaller groups for what we call discipleship, which is really just to be open with each other about our lives. Because we want to bear fruit that will last forever in each other, in the relationships we have with each other. But we are, uh, you know, we're, we're starting a new year, and we do believe that there's a lot of people in Birmingham that would love to become just simply disciples of Jesus if they knew. If they knew what it means to be a Christian, if they knew the blessing of having a relationship with God, they'd say, sign me up. But see, they won't know unless we tell them. And so we have a responsibility as a church, yes, to take care of each other, but also to be a light and serve the world. And so this calendar just kind of shows our meetings, and it shows kind of what's happening at our meetings and the themes of the different uh, meetings that we will have. And it's, it's, just, it's just, I want you to pray about this. 
Because on the 5th of February, we're going to have a Bring Your Neighbor Day, and we'll have sort of a potluck dinner as well, and we'll make a big celebration of it. But we'll really go after bringing our friends. And if you're visiting with us today, please feel free to bring your friends as well. Because this isn't about us, it's about God. And it's about us finding God's will in our lives. Now we've got a theme for the year, which is a crown that never fades. And, uh, you know, a crown that lasts forever. Depends what English translation you're using. But a crown that lasts forever because it's the year of the Olympics. It's also the 60-year jubilee of the Queen. Can you believe that? Okay. I mean, for many of us, she's been Queen our whole lives. But, you know, 60 years is kind of a big year. But, you know, those things, crowns come and go. Olympics come and go. But eternal life is a gift that you have forever. And so we want to run the Christian life to win. And so that will be the theme about just running to win in this life, really getting the most out of it and uh, looking for God's blessing in this life. So I also just want to say if you're a family group leader, please come to me after the service because I want to give you a little package with the teaching materials. Typically at these smaller meetings, we kind of do what's on the heart of the mature Christians in those groups or, you know, there's some specific teaching. But we'd actually like to, as a church, go through a program for the next three weeks so that we're all just doing the same thing, thinking the same thing, that we're one in mind and heart about this. Because God has put us on this world, put us in this world, so that we could have a harvest. First of all, in righteousness in our relationship with Him, But then in our relationships with each other. How many people have too many friends? I saw a few hands go up. Wow. Okay. You know, the truth is, God wants us to have real friends. And lots of them. And God wants us to have a real connection with Him. You know, through the centuries, farming has been... It's been a metaphor that that the Scriptures have used, Christians have used, to understand how God looks at the world. He's made the world the way way it works, there's certain principles that work in it, but then He's allowed us to be co-workers with Him. As Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful. As Jesus said, don't wait four months. Don't say four months until the harvest. You can start the harvest right now. But the harvest we're looking for isn't material wealth. The harvest we're looking for isn't fame and acceptance among men. What we're looking for is a righteousness from God and an impact in the lives of each other that's going to be an eternal reward for us all in heaven. Amen.